Hey, listeners. If you enjoy going to space with us each week through our podcast or our vodcast interviews, can you help us out? It's easy to do. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a new episode. But we would be so appreciative if you would even go the step further to write a review wherever you listen, be it Apple, Amazon, or Spotify. Or you can even go to our YouTube channel, Aerospace and Innovation Academy. Leaving us the highest ratings helps us to move those algorithms, which helps us reach more like-minded listeners. If we've ever helped you or your student to enjoy the world of aerospace education, it would mean so much to us. And without further ado, let's get to this week's show. Let's go to space, Blue Sky Learning, episode 125, Space Physics with Dr. Turkakin. Today, Kevin and I meet with Professor Hava Turkakin, who has always been fascinated by the secret works of the universe. Possessing a bachelor's degree from the Black Sea Technical University in Turkey, and after teaching high school for several years, Hava's desire to learn more about physics spurned her to continue her education further earning her master's and her PhD in space physics from the University of Alberta. She even taught as a visiting assistant professor at both Bucknell University and the University of Central Arkansas before landing where she is at Utica University. Now, Dr. Turkakin's research interests include solar terrestrial interactions, space weather, space plasmas, and plasma waves and instabilities in space but she also loves reading, taking a nature walk, and spending time with her children. Now we know we're gonna learn a lot from this episode, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoy talking with her and ask you to remember to stay tuned after for the takeaways. Well, welcome, welcome. We are so excited to finally to meet with you today. For our audience members, please introduce yourself and share with them uh, a little bit about who you are and how you came to be involved in space. I am Hava Turkakin. I am from Turkey. Uh, I had my um, bachelor in physics and I did master's and PhD in space physics in uh, University of Alberta, Canada, which is where I got involved in space physics. And it's a funny story. Actually, I was planning to work on uh, black holes and so all excited topics in, in research, but all the researchers were picked up already. They had a lot of students, they couldn't take me and I went for space. I said, it's close enough. And I became to love it more than the other subject areas in astronomy and cosmology. It's, I, I love it and I, I kept working on space. What are some themes? So. Most of us know physics when you're an undergrad or uh, a student, even pre-college, you know about mechanics and forces and energy, electricity, magnetism. How is space physics a little bit different or the same from sort of some of the standard topics that you might see in a physics class? I actually, um... I had no idea there was a subject like space physics. I didn't know what plasma is. I was quite blind about how exciting this area could be. I took astronomy classes, but nobody even talked about plasma in there. We have all these star evolutions, black holes and so on and so forth. Um, so I had no idea. I couldn't connect in the beginning. I was like in a 
totally different area, area than physics. And I slowly, slowly start to pick up that it's really deeply related to particles, deeply related to electricity and magnetism, and how those particles interact with magnetism. I, I get to understand it better. And the more I understand, the more I, I figure that it's really exciting area and it's really deep physics, not really a different thing. It's all physics, but we just, Undergraduate level courses, unfortunately, are not very common, and right. I would be really interested in, in opening one here. So, so you're one of these folks that might see a star, and whereas we just see a ball of gas with light, you see almost a living thing, right? A very dynamic. See, that's uh, what I was trying to figure out, like, uh, how the plasma part fits in, because just like you're saying, I've, I've, I mean, I've heard of obviously black holes, but I can't even fathom plasma. So it's the reaction to what we're seeing. I'll I'll let the doc explain it. It's actually exactly when I see a star before I took any space physics course, I was saying, okay, ball of gas and dust and, and just staying there. And so now I see an alive plasma having particles going around magnetic fields, shooting some of it out, and it's, it's all active. It's it's very different. It's very different than what I knew. And as I know, black holes swallow and everything. I didn't know it's actually swallowing parts of the stars, which, which are plasma and emitting light as they go in. It's I don't know why astronomy is not involved in some of that. I did not have any any information about how plasma is actually in the heart of the stars and how they work. Which should it should be in astronomy books as well, but I don't know. Maybe it's too is it, much. Is they it kind of like a recent? Thing where technology advanced enough to be able to determine that it was there? I mean, how, how long have they known plasma was, was part of what we were seeing? I don't know. Uh, a lot of researchers I talk from astrophysics mainly say they are working on uh, plasma, but it's, well, not really plasma. They are working on the start and so on as uh, they assume they're just particles floating around like a fluid. While in plasma, we put the magnetic field, which is the general complication that we should have there to make it correct. So I'm, I believe still to this day, they're not really involved in plasma as plasma in their studies, unless they are specifically studying on the sun or the solar wind of other stars. They don't involve it as a plasma. They involve these particles freely rotating around, going around without magnetic field, which is actually not even, not even correct. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I always find fascinating the fact that you have this fusion going on and this immense pressure and, and immense temperatures, but at the same time you have gravity fighting it. So the star is constantly in this dance between uh, wanting to expand and its own mass causing it to collapse. Uh, I, I find that very interesting. Uh, could you share a little bit about your thoughts on the connection between uh, or how the size of a star is related to those different forces? Oh, actually, um, this is more like, again, this is more like astrophysics side, I believe, um, how stars forms and as they form, gravity collapses in them down. As the gravity pushes the particle closer and closer, at some point, they heat up. And at some point, they are hot enough to start fusion. And when they start fusion in them, hydrogen turning into helium first. That uh, fusion try to expand them and gravity keeps pushing down. So they have an equilibrium until their uh, source of fusion ends at some point. So all hydrogen converts to helium first. So we have a stable like star. And as the fusion happens, it emits energy and that energy comes out 
as particles going out with the magnetic field and so on, which is plasma. So that's understanding what happens outside of the stars as that energy comes out. But uh, that's what is happening in the stars. And after hydrogen fuel burns and finishes, then helium converts to carbon. And after all, so after hydrogen finishes, um, star collapses a little bit because we have now helium that is not hot enough to have fusion. So we don't have helium fusion. Star keeps collapsing at some point. It's hot enough to start helium fusion. And then it, it stabilizes again because this fusion keeps it stabilized. There's gravity, there's fusion keeping them stable. Helium converts to the carbon, I believe. I don't remember exact sequence. No, but it, it, it's very complicated. It runs all the way going. to iron, right? I think- Yeah, until the iron, this sequence keeps going. Carbon burns into another one and so on. After iron, it's, it's too heavy to collapse enough to burn and start fusion. So star star's life finishes. And well, how it um, finishes depends on how heavy it is, perhaps everybody. Right. Yeah. Well, let's flip back to your happy place and talk about plasma. Wait, before you go, I want to clarify something she okay. said, please. Um, so for, for the layman like myself who might be listening, right? Um, so it sounds like the difference between astrophysics and space physics from what you said is that you're studying outside of the stars. Is, yeah, either I'm studying the outside of the star, how it emits this energy, how that energy, or I'm studying how that energy is traveling in the space and how it affects whatever is in there, the right. planets, the moons and everything. That's what space physics is. It's mainly around the solar system, but some part, it goes a little bit into planetary science, but some, some people works on um, other habitable planets and their stars. It's also similar, similar topics, yeah. So, so one way you might characterize it for the layman is, you're sort of like into space weather, at least the exactly that emanate yeah. from the star and how they interact with the environment around it. Um, yeah, I, I thought um, we might uh, circle back to plasma. Have you had the chance to work in labs where you created plasma or go visit and work? Uh, is there an easy way for a scientist here on Earth to directly create and manipulate plasma? Or is it best done um, indirectly through observations uh, with telescopes? Uh, there's a way to create plasma, which is actually done in the labs. A lot, a lot of uh, plasma physicists are actually, that's a different area, close to space physics, but different area. They are working into generating plasma and generating fusion on Earth, which is another area of research. So. I didn't do research on that. I had a friend working on it. So as far as I know from talking to her, they send uh, laser light through particles and that uh, very energetic laser light uh, generates a plasma in the um, column they send it. And they have a plasma there. They study that. They you know, study how it interacts with the surrounding. And mainly, again, they try to see if we can energize particles to a high value, high level enough to generate fusion. Uh, right. It's not achieved yet, but it's a research people. It's the, uh, the hope for a clean energy in the future, right? Exactly, yes. It's right. the hope for clean energy in the future. And for our listeners that may not be um, scientists or engineers or even young students, think of plasma as a really energetic uh, state of matter where the electrons have too much energy to remain around a nucleus. And so it's a, I always describe it as a hot and pressurized soup of particles. 
Could you please correct my analogy or maybe improve on it? It's actually correct. I actually describe it in any level of course I teach as a fourth state of matter where we have very energetic electrons that are not able to stay tied to protons. So we have actually a gas that is totally ionized. Protons and electrons are flown around, or it could be a gas, oxygen gas, let's say, but lost some electrons, so it's ionized. There is no full atomic gas in there, then we have a plasma. So your description is totally correct. And I believe we should teach plasma as the fourth state of matter in elementary schools even. Um, it is the fourth I, state of well, I can tell you this, in sixth grade, the questions they will be assessed on is, what is the most prevalent state of matter that we know of in the universe? And that of course is plasma. That Since is plasma. Such, such a high percentage of our solar system, right? Is it probably 98, 99% of- 99% of the universe is, is, is plasma. So, well, since we're talking about the sun, I noticed that you know, when I was recording the bio, your research area was in solar terrestrial, right? So between, the actions in between. So is that what we're talking about here is like the energy that's kind of coming out from the sun and how it kind of influences the other planets or things like that as well? And you can actually, probably, is that the plasma? It's something you can measure in between that, that energy? Exactly, exactly. We uh, work on, uh, I specifically work on the solar terrestrial interactions. A part of it, if you want me to go more specific, I could, but I'll, I'll be more general here. We have a lot of spacecrafts in between the Earth and the Sun measuring the number of particles, their temperature, how many, uh, and how energetic they are, density of the plasma coming in. And on Earth, actually, NOAA itself uses the, that input to uh, give us information about the weather on Earth, because this is where it starts. So space weather is directly connected to weather on Earth. Uh, how energetic those particles are important and how much of them are escaping coming closer to the earth and affecting the life on earth and matter on earth so we have a lot of uh, spacecrafts measuring those we have a lot of spacecrafts measuring what happens after that closer to the earth we look at all those data and try to understand what happens here as the solar wind comes in what happens closer to the earth and how they could be connected which is quite related to what i do uh, as a research well, wait, Kevin, so I want to, I'm trying to understand, right? So with the solar sails, like on CubeSats, when they use those, is that harnessing that energy that she's talking about um, to use as a way to move through? solar pressure, yes. You, you, if you have a very light spacecraft and you don't have to accelerate it in a hurry, you can certainly use the energy, the particles and the waves of the sun to exert a force on your sail. Yeah. I, I wanted to share, and I'd love for you to elaborate. If we get a little bit of solar activity, we get beautiful northern and southern lights. If we get a lot more solar activity, then we lose the internet and we electrify our, our grid gets, you know, our electrical grid falls to pieces. Maybe you could elaborate on, because I had read an article that, you know, they're sort of thinking we might have a in some intense solar activity that might affect the earth. So maybe you could just share a little bit about, we take it for granted the sun's always gonna be there but it does things that could really be dangerous to us as uh, here on the earth. Yes, exactly. Um, so main hero of the story, I believe, is the magnetic field of the earth. The sun is always there. Sometimes it, it sends intense, intense number of particles with high energy flowing fast. And the earth's magnetic field is the, the one that deflects them around because those are all charged particles. And as we know, charged particles, 
deflects around the magnetic field. Magnetic field pushes them around. So it doesn't let them come closer to us. And it forms a protective bubble around the Earth, what we call magnetosphere. However, if the particles are energetic enough, some of them can escape. And where they can escape is mainly the polar regions because we have particles circling around the magnetic fields and they can rain down into the atmosphere, which is what we call uh, northern lights. Um, if they are very energetic, they can rain down closer to the earth. They can cause a lot of uh, group destructions, electricity cuts, um, Polar aviation is affected from it. Even pipelines on the surface of the Earth, depending on how strong they are and how strong energy they have. What they mainly do is they affect the uh, Earth's magnetic field value, generate uh, currents. And those currents feeds into the system we have and dis disturbs our systems. There are events like causing uh, worldwide, not worldwide, but blackouts in certain regions. There's one. The famous one is 2003, I believe, what we call Halloween events, and it, it caused really wide uh, blackouts in uh, northern Canada, I believe, because northern regions are more vulnerable, but it could move down depending on, depending on the strength. So while you're a space physicist, you're also uh, interested in and study the relationship between the solar weather and the Earth at least the Earth's magnetic field. Is that a true statement? Yes, that is a true statement. So I, I didn't read the, I, I read an article recently, or at least I read the heading. Let me be honest. I read the title of the article, but it had something to do with why the Earth's magnetic field is not uniform. And there's a place, uh, is it in the Atlantic? Is it where the South Atlantic anomaly is that the magnetic field is weaker? I wondered if you had spent any time with that. No, actually, honestly, I don't. I don't have information on that. That's fine. It's close I, to the surface to... of the Earth, I, I assume. Yes. It, it, yes. It, yes. <clears throat> Earth's magnetic field is not constant by nature. As we go farther away from Earth, it changes. Sure. It's a very volatile change in value, in direction, and magnitude already. Another thing I can say is, as the magnetic field of the Earth of the sun comes and hits the magnetic field of the earth, a lot of stuff details happens there. And sometimes depending on their direction, these two magnetic field lines combines, we have a total magnetic field line. Then we have a lot of changes happening in the magnetosphere. Different regions forming, magnetic field change in direction of magnetic field change in different flow of plasma escaping towards the earth. A lot of stuff happens. I don't know how, how much details I should go in here, but well, um, he's drawing pictures of everything that you're saying over here, yeah. so that's why he keeps trying to to, to bring it down to my level. He's drawing. I, I, I'm drawing. Okay. Uh, that's a good picture. I, I was just just showing how the 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 particles don't get a straight line path to the surface of the Earth. That the magnetic field lines just you know they change exactly. The but we could be overpowered. Our magnetic field is not impervious to the you know what could come from the sun so when you uh, talk about bit flips does that have anything to do with the solar the, the radiation that's coming from that when it it really um we get concerned about bit flips in our spacecraft especially it seems like they occur more often in the south magnetic uh, south atlantic anomaly so hmm. um that i think is a function of having a lot more charged particles uh where our spacecraft passes through you know a more energetic 
apart. Sometimes we get a one that becomes a zero or a zero that becomes a one. We call those bit flips. So you have to often, if you're in a higher orbit, make sure you have software considerations to how you can um, recover from some interference from space weather and how you can reset your, your computer. So I believe that would be because that is a region, I'm really terrible in geography, but that is a region close to the polar regions. So that would be where those particles can easily escape the right. most energetic ones, yeah. And that would, that would that, that makes sense, right? If you have a low altitude polar orbit, you're yeah. gonna pass through twice or twice in orbit the most concentrated yeah, region of the particles. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So there are some re uh, researchers working specifically on polar caps, northern and southern, to understand that better, to help build better, stronger spacecrafts to endure that. And, and also aircrafts, depending on the strength, aircrafts also could be affected. Right. Well, let's pivot to your students, your current work, and maybe how we met through a certain NASA opportunity. Yeah, we met, uh, Kevin and I met through um, what we call NASA HEAT, uh, NASA Heliophysics Educator Activation um, Program, I believe, is it? No, HEAT. Let's call it TEAM. Was this the one in Orlando that you mentioned? Yes. Uh, activation, uh, I don't know what T is for, but... Um, we are simply space physics ambassadors. We are all interested in educating public and schools about space physics, researching space physics, how, how important it is in our actually everyday life. It's, it's out there and in here. That's what I really like about space physics. If you study black holes, uh, you know, star evolutions, all exciting, but space physics is, affecting our everyday life. It's a very important area of research and it's really, really surprising that public don't know about it much. No. Don't. You know, uh, black holes are light years away. Our sun's only eight minutes away. Exactly. I, I was thinking before I become a space physicist that we know everything about solar system, but we don't know anything about solar system. A lot of stuff. I'm excited for exploring the moons and, you know, like not only going to the outer solar system, but just in general, just things to learn. There's so much we need to learn about so how they formed, how they behave. Why is there liquid water, you know, uh, exactly. so far away from the Some sun? Places. Well, let's talk about how a student might come into space physics then. So by the time you see them, they're normally graduate students, correct? Um, no, undergrad students. Oh, undergrads. Okay. So yeah. when a student, like when they're first coming, do, I mean, I'm just assuming our students probably don't know, just like I didn't. I mean, I've heard of astrophysics, that there's an entire separate area of study. So what kind of students would be um, ideal for candidates for like, what would their interest or skill level? What, what should they be thinking about? Um, I have, we have several undergraduate physics students. I think that should be our main, um, for me at least, they, they are my main uh, focus point because they are already interested in physics. And I, it's very, it's gonna be very easy to get them interested in physics. So what I'm planning to do and doing also is to hire students. I got this NSF grant for, um, for doing space physics research in an inner area of the Earth's magnetosphere. 
and I'm hiring one high school student, one uh, physics, undergraduate physics student to work on this with me. And what I'm planning to do is actually I'm going to make them one of their duty will be to be space physics ambassadors with me. And what we're going to do is we're going to take NASA heat activities to schools. We're going to show one activity, do them with the teachers and then leave information that there is more to that. And this year we're planning to do um, what we have there, um, eclipse activities, because we have two eclipses coming in. It's right on the spot. They will be interested. We'll talk them about, about eclipses, and we're going to have the students do that interact. The, uh, this activity, which will get them excited. And I'm hoping to get more physics students coming here and becoming yeah. undergrad space ambassadors with me, hopefully. That, that's fantastic. I, I worked at NSF for six years. And so I want to tell you, I want to tell our listeners, it is a big deal to win an NSF grant because they are very competitive. So congratulations. And a lot of work. I remember oh, when yeah. we, we tried. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's, uh, that is not a short proposal that you knock out one evening, right? No. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I just want to tell you, it's awesome. We're proud of you for uh, earning a grant because that's a nice seal of approval on your research if the NSF is willing to support well, it. Well, and I think too, what I love about what you said is you've got a, you know, a university student, but you're also bringing in a high school student. And we talk all the time about how we think that education is, is messed up and that we oftentimes expect students to wait until they're at the university level before we really give them the real hands-on work of, of aerospace. So the fact that you brought it to high school is, exactly. Is we should, I believe we should even bring it down to well, younger. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think we we're we're willing to come help you run a summer camp next summer. I can do orbital mechanics if you'd like. Uh, we can do some Holman transfers uh, with the you know middle, middle school. school. Middle school. Uh, that would be awesome. That would 10, be 11, awesome. 12 years old. We need. We need them really young. If they can do pre-algebra, let's do space. Space. Exactly. Math. They can do space. Yeah. You know. Please well, tell me about that. I'm definitely interested in. Well, I, I just want to tell you, I really enjoyed meeting you. We were uh, in a NASA heat workshop in uh, July. I think it was late June, late June, late June this yeah. in Orlando, and it was fantastic. And uh, I just want to uh, thank you for being here. Well, before I want to we thank you for having me. I really enjoyed meeting you too. Well, before we go, we always ask for any words of advice. So our final question for any of our listeners out there who might be aspiring physicists or who might be the parents or educators of students in their classrooms, is there something that, that you want to give to them as we leave? Is it about plasma, teaching plasma, or is it beyond that? Uh, it's actually beyond that. I want I to tell them that if they are interested and like it, go for it. It's not always easy like that. They will have hard times understanding stuff, doing stuff maybe, succeeding in, in something they wanna succeed, but they will succeed in as long as they persevere. Perseverance is the key. Don't give up, keep going. You'll get where you wanna go. We Fantastic. Well, we're going, to post, we're going to post the link to your classes or your, your links on our uh, show notes. And we're also going to publish the link to NASA Heat. So Rebecca should like that, that we're advertising for NASA Heat. Make sure Heat. you send those to me so I can get Thank them. you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome.
You know, I did not know until this moment, I was today days old when I realized that space physics was different from astrophysics. In fact, when I was about to record the, uh, the, the bio, you know, I remember, I think I had already had one called, you know, the physics of space. And I realized, oh, they're completely different. Um, so yeah, that was quite a lesson for me. Well, I, I like Hava because she has a really a good heart for students and she has been an educator as least as long as she's been a researcher. So it was really great. We met, we met at the NASA HEAT uh, Physics Ambassador Workshop. She's obviously a rock star. I was just really Did glad to Did she go to, to dinner meet. with us? I, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think you introduced me to her standing there, but I'm not sure. I, I don't, don't recall think, her from dinner. No, I, I don't think she did, but she is uh, great. She's going to be looking for a high school student up there near Utica College. That's New York, right? That's absolutely yeah. correct. So we're going to post some links in the show notes. Uh, and we encourage you to uh, check out uh, Dr. Uh, Turkigan's lab. And uh, she's great. Wow. I look forward to having her back sometime. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode with her as well. And we'll continue these kind of great connections and the networking that Mr. Simmons provides on our next episode of Let's Go to Space Blue Sky Learning.